Okay, we want to turn now to um, John's Gospel. Now, um, I guess it was, I, Jeff was preaching last week, wasn't he? And I had my surgery, so I'm actually going back uh, two weeks now to when I last, uh, and on that message, which is my last message, uh, talking about the passages in John's Gospel where we have this phrase that is not translated in the majority of English Bibles, but it's there, and it's important. As a matter of fact, um, it's important because it'll, if you don't know that it's there, if you don't have the fullness of the message, then it's going to rob you of the assurances that we talked about where Jesus used these, this strong, strong language of a double negative to assure us that certain things would or would not happen. And so we need to know about those. Um, we looked at, I'm going to look at several passages here, just review what we looked at, just because there's been some time in between. Uh, all of these are in John's Gospel. And in John chapter 1, or excuse me, John chapter 4, in verse 14, with the woman at the well, you might remember these now, where he said, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. And that word never is a double negative. It never, never in any way possible will they ever thirst. And then the part that's not translated frequently is into the age. And you just look in any Greek text or any interlinear, and you'll see Strong's numbers there. If you look in the Greek text, you'll see the Greek words. They're there. And um, the importance of that is simply the context of the Bible, that God is preparing a people to populate this earth when his son comes to rule. And wouldn't it be a shame if you know, Jesus came back to rule this world and nobody had been obedient to him, nobody had believed, and there was nobody here to populate his kingdom? But rather, he's gathering a host of believing folks who have the desire and the will to share in his coming rule. And he offers it to us. He gives it as a response to those who willingly follow him. So when he talks to this woman about never thirsting, it's never thirst into or with respect to the coming age. Now, I know for, if our, for the sake of our visitors, this is something that we've studied in the past, and folks here know what I'm talking about. This is something that we'll pick up maybe at a later time. But the Bible makes very clear that we are living in a current age, a present age. And in Matthew chapter 12, he very clearly talks about an age to come. And Paul references the age to come as well. And the age to come is the one in which the Messiah will rule the earth. It's going to be the most important age this world has ever experienced. And in order to be a part of it, in order to experience it, it requires that we are that we number we believe and are believing 
in the Lord Jesus. You see, here in this passage here that we're looking at, when he says, whoever drinks of the water, the word drink is an, is an aorist tense. And for those of you that don't understand that, that simply means it's an act or a deed that one occurs. So if I had, oh, I left my water down there. If I took my bottle of water and I took a drink of it and I'm done, that's an aorist tense. It's a completed act. So whoever drinks of Jesus he says, will never thirst. That's also an aorist tense. Now, don't be fooled by that because an aorist tense can expand. It can be an event. It's an event. It's what it is. And it can expand and occur over a large period of time. And quite frankly, when he says, drink of the water that I shall give you, when he's talking to the woman at the well, he's talking about, her lifetime. In other words, it's not something that you can just do and then walk away and forget it and say, oh, it's all over with. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to be with Jesus forever and then be done with it. And we're going to see that in the other passages, like in John 8, 51. We saw there in that passage where Jesus said, uh, anyone who keeps, Eris tense again, Keeps my word. Now, it's, it's keeping, it's to keep for the whole duration of the rest of your life. From the moment you are introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ to the very end. And he goes on to say, he shall never see death. Now, it's quite a strange promise to many of our ears because we think, well, you know, the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die. We're all going to die. But he's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual life and making sure that you will be resurrected to uh, share in that coming rule. And once you gain that life, and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then he says you, and, and you are maintaining that by continuously believing in the Lord, continuously trusting in his word, then he's telling us you will never, never, ever in any way possible lose that. I'm emphasizing that for a very reason, and, and I put these in logical or chronological order, except for the one I'm going to emphasize today. And I'm doing that for a reason. So do you, do you understand what we're trying to say here? Is that when you have received the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's more. Well, let me just move on because there's more to it. Um, in, in John 10, 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall any snatch them out of my hand. Now, that's the verse we're going to focus in on today. John chapter 11, the first verse we dealt with two weeks ago, when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, he says, though he may die, yet he shall live. Now, that's looking to the future. Yet he shall live, he shall be resurrected out in the future. And whoever lives now, it's a present tense, 
whoever is living and believes, that's present tense also. So it's whoever is living and believing in me in a continuous, ongoing fashion, he says, shall never, double negative, in any way possible, ever die. That is, lose the prospect of sharing in the Messiah's rule when he comes. And so he asked Martha, he said, do you believe this, Martha? Well, that's a good question for you and I to ask ourselves. Do you really believe it? If you do, then you will be living and believing in Jesus on a constant and regular basis. And the implication there, as we're going to see later on, is obediently living for him. That means believing his word. And that's exactly what Mark prayed just a little while ago. It's believing his word. I just shared something with a fellow yesterday, and I was sharing some things out of his word about a particular topic. And, well, but. When you say, well, but, and you cast doubt on the Lord's word, then you're, you're jeopardize, jeopardizing your faith. You're jeopardizing your walk with him. You don't want to use but. When you read the word of God, you accept it for what it says. Now, John in chapter uh, 13, verse 8, we have the one place where Jesus wasn't speaking, but it was Peter. And this is the incident with the washing of the disciples' feet. And Jesus wanted to wash every one of them's feet, but Peter, of course, stands up and says, no way. And you know what he said? He said, with a double negative, you shall never, never wash my feet. And then we have that little phrase that's not translated into the age or all the way to the age. Now, my point of all of this is simply this. And by the way, this is the last reference chronologically. So Peter's already heard this from the lips of Jesus five times, well, four times, once negatively from the Pharisees standing off, you know, hearing Jesus say these things. So don't think that he didn't understand the context of the message. It was all about the fact that Jesus proclaimed himself to be the Messiah of Israel. And Peter understood that. And he understood that he was the promised Messiah who would inaugurate a new age in which the Messiah would rule the world in righteousness and peace. And he would deliver Israel from all of her enemies. And they would enjoy prosperity and abundance like they'd never experienced before. And so, as a consequence of all of that, Jesus told Peter, he says, well, if I don't wash your feet, he says, you don't have any part with me. And the word part there means to have a portion or a share with me. Now, again, in the context, you won't have any part or share or portion with me 
in my coming rule, in the coming age. That which he had just taught them about in the, I mean, way more than what I just, these verses I quoted here. We're just dealing with one topic of it. One portion of it. Now, again, I want to say that, and I don't, I hate being so technical, but this is the only way I know to get the message across, is that when you're dealing with this double negative and you use what the Greek teachers will tell us is an aorist subjunctive, then it means it is in the strongest possible way you could ever say it in the Greek language that whatever it is he's speaking of, it is never going to happen. It cannot, and it will not happen. Now, why do we need those assurances? Why is he using this kind of language to get across to you and I that these things won't fail to pass? Well, I can tell you very briefly, is to inspire us to godly Christian living. It is to be an obedient disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, well, let's go to our passage for today. John chapter 10 and verses 27 and 28. And verses 27 and 28. Now, that's a very famous passage. We know about, it's all about the sheep and about those in the sheepfold and so on. In verse 25, Jesus said this, I told you, and you do not believe, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. Now, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Now, that's a great verse for our security in Christ. But here's what I want to say about that. And I hope, I hope you get the point of it so that you are stirred in your own heart to devote yourself to the Lord Jesus and to be an obedient disciple. Not that you'll be a perfect one. Just don't come to my home and ask anybody about it. You'll find out. Now, don't say it like that. <laughs> she knows it's true. <laughs> but we're all living life. And we are called upon to live in obedience to the Lord Jesus. Now, I want to read a translation to you that emphasizes the tenses of the verbs here so you understand exactly what he's saying. He says, in ver beginning in verse 27 again, because my sheep are constantly hearing and listening, and the word listening there, by the way, implies the idea of obedience. They're, they are hearing and listening. My voice, and I myself am progressively or continuously knowing them by intimate experience, and they are progressively or habitually following me. And he says, and I myself 
am continuously giving, in verse 28, age-lasting or age-abiding life, or life for the coming age. That is, he is constantly giving to us the character and the qualities of the life that will be experienced in that coming age. And he's giving it to us now. That's why we're growing. That's why we need to be maturing. And he says he gives that to us by intimate experience. Now, we've talked in the, many times, and I'm just going to briefly mention again, there's more than one word for no, K-N-O-W, not the double negative, N-O-N-O, but this is K-N-O-W in the, in the Greek Testament. You have a word that means knowing things by factual observation or because you learn certain facts about math, about history, whatever it may be. But then there's a knowing that comes from intimacy. Now, I've often used the expression, like I'll just say, I got a perfect example here. I didn't know Jerry or Lori or Jesse until I met them. If they, anybody would have asked me, do you know those three patties? I would have said, never heard of them in my life. Last week, I got to meet them. If anybody asks me again, do I know them? Then I can say, well, I know them a whole lot better than I did before. My level of intimacy moved forward a little bit. And then for those of you that I've known for a much longer period of time, I know you much more intimately than I know them. And I know my wife much more intimately than I know any of the rest of you. Now, the point of it is, is that we are to grow into our experience with the Lord Jesus in the same way. So my question then is, is are you experiencing excuse me, experiencing Jesus in your everyday life? Are you having experiences with him that are just intimate between you and him? Or maybe you and one other person or two. It could be more than one. It's a growing experience. It's one thing to have a factual knowledge, in other words, of the Lord Jesus. It's another thing to have a growing experience with him. And to use Jeff Smith's meta metaphor, Jeff, it's one thing to have a gym membership. It's another thing to go and exercise. One is a factual thing. I've got the card in my pocket. I'm a member at the, at the gym. It's another thing that you can show that I've been to the gym and I've been working out and I've got the experience of being there. It's one thing for you to say, oh, I trusted Jesus as my Savior 25, 35, 50 years ago. It's another thing altogether to say, well, for the last 20 years, I've been enjoying a sweet walk with him. Now, what I'm trying to tell you is, what Jesus is saying here to his disciples is, if you do not do that, then the prospect of sharing in his kingdom is severely hampered and minimized. 
and you've placed yourself in jeopardy of losing that right. Sharing in the coming rule of Christ is not just a gym membership. It's not just saying, I received Jesus as my Savior. It goes way beyond that. It's a very demanding life, by the way. And you know when he says the word follow? It just simply means that. It means here's somebody going down a certain road, and I'm going to get in behind them, and I'm going right down that road with them, and I'm not going to step off to the right, not going to get off to the left. I'm going to stay on that road. I am following Jesus, and I'm going to be his disciple. And so when you're tempted to go off over here and follow the ways of the world, or you're going to go off this way and follow the ways of the world, or the, or the popular crowd, you're jeopardizing, jeopardizing, I'm going to get that word out right, your place and position in the coming rule of Christ. So, when he says they shall never perish, I want you to notice that word. They shall never in any way perish. Now, I want, I, I want to say something here. This is where we get in trouble. When we put on a word a theological meaning that's not there, and we don't even stop to think about it, we just assume that's what it means. So, for instance, the, the average churchgoer would read a passage like that and say they shall never perish and just say, oh, that means they'll never go to hell. And they cast a meaning upon that word which isn't there. The word perish just means to be ruined, to be marred, to destroy something completely, or even to kill. The point of it all is, is it means to render it useless and of no value. So if I had a wineskin and I took a knife and, you know, or I bumped up against something and punctured a hole in it, it's, 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 it's perished. It's useless. It's no longer good for holding wine. Or if I have a utensil, you know, and I drop it and it breaks. Or if we think about what the, the uh, Jewish leaders wanted to do to Jesus. Do you remember? It said they were trying to figure out a way to destroy him, make him perish. It's the same word. So there are, all, there are many different ways in which this word, apolumi, can be used. It's translated in other ways besides perish. And what Jesus is telling his disciples here is that if you are living and believing, obeying me, then there is no way, it is impossible for you to ever perish. That is, lose your value such that you are no longer of any import for my kingdom. He's looking for obedient disciples. Obedient disciples just means doing his word. You know, I don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't cheat. 
Honor my father and mother. Love my neighbor. Love my brother. You know, John said, if you don't love your brother, he says, you don't have, you don't even have God. He doesn't mean you're not saved. He means you do not have him in the relationship that is necessary for you to stand approved and blameless before him at his judgment seat. See, that's where it's all going to take place when he makes the decision as to who is approved and who's disapproved. Now, I, w- I want us to, let me just read a few how this word is used, because it's translated lost also. And again, we have a tendency to imbue that word lost with heavy theological meaning, like you're lost and going to hell because you don't believe in Jesus. And that's not what he's talking about here. When he says here in Matthew 10, go rather to the lost sheep, of the house of Israel. But over in Luke chapter 15 and verse 6, he says concerning the man who had a hundred sheep and he lost one. Says there, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Now, I couldn't tell you how many times I've heard messages where that's been taught as that one sheep was not saved. Well, let me tell you what. It says he had a hundred sheep. There were, he was, he was, it, it was a sheep before it got lost, and it was still a sheep when he found it. It simply was lost. It had perished. It was wayward. And he went out and found it and brought it back. And by the way, that ought to be an encouragement to you and I as well. That if you wander off and he comes looking for you, you better go back. It's no time to be playing around. In Matthew 10, 39, well, and by the way, if you read the rest of Luke 15, you'll see that word lost, lost, lost several times. Pay attention to the context. You know, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son who came back. So it doesn't mean to destroy necessarily irreparably and totally gone like a vase that would be totally shattered. That's possible. But concerning the son or the sheep or the coin, you remember all three were recovered. All three were brought back. So then he says, in chapter 10, verse 39, he says, he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake. So you see, Jesus is talking about the same thing. If you lose your life, if you're willing to put away your own life for your own self to live for him and follow him, He said, then you're going to find it. Just like the sheep was found, the coin was found, and the lost son was found. You remember what the father said? This my son was lost and is what? Found. So, let's move 
then to John chapter 3. So turn a few pages back in your Bible to John chapter 3, and hopefully we'll, we'll briefly look at a passage that is very, very familiar to all of us. And I wish we had time to go back and look at the larger context of chapter 3. Um, and by the way, Brother John Swigert, when he comes to speak at the Bible conference, he's, he's going to be dealing with this whole chapter here, actually in before and after too. So I'm just going to be dealing with one part of it here. When he says in verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever is believing. Now, I want us to see that there are present tenses here again. And we, we, we miss it sometimes in our English translation. that whoever is believing in him should not be perishing. He says, but have what? Eternal life. You know, that's the same expression that we've been talking about that's been hidden in these five passages. But it appears there six times, but there's five passages. Life for the coming age. So here he makes it very clear that the one who is living, excuse me, believing in him, in verse 15, should not perish, but have life for the coming age. And why I'm saying this and I'm emphasizing it is because of the present tense. Too often we get relaxed, and we think, well, just because I accepted Jesus as my Savior when I was nine years old, or when I was 21, and that was 45 years ago, and I'm really not too worried about it, but you should be. You should be thinking about whether you have actually surrendered and devoted your life to following Jesus as your Savior. Now, in verse 16, he repeats that again. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him, whoever is believing in him, present tense, should not perish but have, and the words everlasting life is exactly the same words in verse 15, eternal life. They just translated it differently. Both of them mean you will have life for the coming age. Now, by the way, let me just toss in here. It's been 2,000 years nearly since the Lord Jesus walked on this earth. I think we're coming very, very near the end of this age. And you see the condition this world is in and where it's headed. It is ripe for someone to come and take over this world and begin to rule it. And the scriptures teach us that a false Christ will do that very thing before Jesus actually comes back to rule this world. I want to be ready. I want to be prepared. I don't walk, but you know what? If I am 
doing, you know, if we could go through the scriptures and do all the things that Jesus and, and, and Paul and Peter and John said, you do all these things, if, I, if I'm doing all those things, I don't wake up in fear every day wondering, am I going to make it or not? What I do wake up is and, and, and think about is, am I being obedient? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing when I follow Christ? And so he goes on to say then, you will have life for the coming age. For, verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, this is one of those contexts where the word saved is used to talk about being saved to enter his kingdom. And I want to be saved to enter that kingdom. I want to be delivered to enter that coming kingdom of Christ. Verse 18, he says, He who is believing in him is not condemned. Do you understand there? Just think that through. Present tense. He who is believing in him. If you've been saved for 20, 30 years and you are not living for the Lord, you are not believing in him and you are condemned. You are under judgment. That's why you need to be obedient. That's why there needs to be a point, a time, when you surrender to Christ and you say, Lord, and he is, if you're saved, he is Lord, that you are going to follow him as Lord of your life. You know, many people in Jesus' day followed Caesar as Lord. If you, if you were a Roman, you better follow him as Lord, or you wouldn't live long. If you were proclaiming some other God as Lord and you were being uh, uh, swearing, if you were swearing your allegiance to that God and you were public about it, you weren't going to live very long. You would have found yourself hanging on a cross and being crucified. Caesar was the Lord. That's why it's so fascinating when you think about the devotion of the early disciples who did call Jesus Lord and were totally unashamed about it. They didn't care whether it was fellow Jews or Romans or who it was. They proclaimed Jesus as Lord. So again, verse 18, the one then, present tense, believing in him is not condemned. You're not going to be under judgment. But he who does not believe, that is, is not believing, present tense, is condemned or judged already. So what, what does all that mean? It means you don't have life for the coming age. It doesn't mean you don't know God. You remember in that initial sense we talked about where you first meet someone and you're introduced to them? Do you remember the woman at the well, the heiress tense? Do you remember where it said, if you drink of the water? There is a time when each one of us must meet and surrender to the claims of the Lord Jesus. But following that, there is a continuous believing and obeying of him. And if you don't do it, he says you are under judgment right then. Why, he says, because he has not believed or trusted in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now that's, to me, is 
hard. It's hard in the sense that we have a lot of demands on our lives. We have a lot of things from the world around us tugging at us, wanting to pull us away and compromise us. But you know, Peter, Jeff was, I think it was, back here in this passage not too long ago in Second um, Peter, in chapter 1. You know, if you want a good list of things, you know, there are several lists in the New Testament. If you want a list of things and say, look, I need to get started somehow. I want to follow the Lord and I want to be obedient. How, what do, I, how do I get started? What am I going to do? Where do I need to be? Well, here in First Peter, or excuse me, Second Peter chapter 1, he tells us here. He says, beginning in verse 5, and we're skipping some things here, so you just have to go back and reread the context. But notice what he says. He says, give all diligence to do these things. Add to your faith. Wow, there you go. If you drink of that water, now you need to add to your faith these things. And he says, virtue, knowledge, self-control. Well, how about that one? Can you you have self-control at the dinner table? You have self-control with your tongue? This gets me in trouble sometimes more than I like to think about, and I don't even want to have to confess that to you. <laughs> but it does. Self-control. Notice what else he says. Perseverance. And godliness. You notice a progression here? You notice a growing maturity as a Christian? You start off with the things that are very basic to the Christian life. And now you're supposed to progress and grow and then notice brotherly kindness. And then lastly, to brotherly kindness, love. And what did Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians 13? Nothing greater than love. If we can get, and, and remember what we said, John said in 1 John, how can you say you love God if you don't love your brother? This is the epitome of the Christian life is living a life of love. And so he goes on to tell us then, he says, if, if these things are yours, if you, if you let these things grow and develop in your life and they abound in your life, he says, you won't be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge that is in the intimacy of knowing the Lord Jesus. You will have progressed to that point. And if you lack those things, he says in verse 9, then you're short-sighted. You're blind, and you've forgotten that you were cleansed from your old sins back there when you drank the water, and you believed on the Lord Jesus, and you received him. So he goes on to say in verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. And then lastly, look at that wonderful promise in verse 11. For so an entrance 
will be supplied to you abundantly into the age-lasting or age-abiding kingdom, the messianic kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just look at that word entrance. You know what it means? It means to enter. It's like you open the door. Do you realize that if you end up like the people in Matthew chapter 7 or the five virgins in Matthew chapter 25 and you're on the outside knocking, it's too late? There are people who will be knocking on the door asking Jesus, can we come in? We want to be in your kingdom. And you know what he says to them? I never knew you. And you've got to know here, understand, he's not talking about, you never accepted me as Savior. He's saying, you never lived in intimacy with me. You never walked with me. And I never got to know you. So living for the Lord on a daily basis is, I'm trying to tell you, is absolutely essential if you are going to hold hope of being a participant in his coming rule. You can't get around it. There's no escape from it. That's why Peter says, I'm not going to be negligent to remind you about these things. And we need to hear them over and over. I need them. I preach it because I need it. I need to hear it. So, to close, my urgent message to you is, have you surrendered to Christ? You know, if you ask the woman at the well in John chapter 4, Remember, we're talking again, that aorist tense. If you drink. So it's legitimate then to ask you the question, has there been a time when you have drank? Has there been a time that you can look back to? She could look back to the well. Say, I met, I met him there at the well. Is there a time and place where you can look back and say, yes, that was the time, that was the day, that was the place where I met the Lord Jesus and I drank, I received him as my Savior? But there's also a time of surrender. There's also a time when Jesus said, if you'll lose your life for my sake, he says, then you'll find it. And it's very important for us to understand that this message of the gospel, which you rarely hear today, it is hardly ever preached anywhere. That's why we're so small. That's why most of the megachurches are huge, because they just tell you, well, you get saved and you're going to go to heaven. Well, who wouldn't like that? And don't worry about the rest of your life. And so I hope that you will consider that. And I hope that you will give your heart and your life to Christ.
you know, I did that. I trusted the Lord way back in my early, early teens and went for many years not understanding what I've just been sharing with you. Had no clue about it. Well, I knew the Bible taught it. I knew it said we should be holy and and because Jesus or God is holy and, you know, that we're supposed to not lie and cheat and, you know, all these other kinds of things and commit adultery and murder somebody. I knew all that stuff. But I'm going to tell you right now, right up there in that brain of mine, I said, well, my logic was if I'm going to die and go to heaven and be with Jesus forever, what's the point of all of this? I just, I just didn't really get it. Once I understood that there's more than just going to heaven, that there's a kingdom coming, and Jesus is going to rule this earth, and his desire for me is that I would share in that kingdom with him. He wants me there then I want to be there. And I'm going to be diligent, I trust, to the very end of my life in pursuing that. And I trust you will too. Let's pray. Father, we do want to thank you for encouraging us along the way and allowing us to know the things that you have taught us and to learn the things that you desire of us so that we might fulfill your purpose for us in putting us here on this earth to fellowship with you. Lord, let us be obedient in those areas and let us meditate and consider the things we need to do to change and let our hearts be filled with that, that supreme love that you desire of all of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.